You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here. I really do mean it. I appreciate it. Let me get right into it and tell you about my guest today. His name is Dr. Stephen Southwick from Yale. The guy's brilliant, very accomplished person. He studies clinical neuroscience and does PTSD research. He's been doing it for 25 years. And what we're going to talk about today is uh, resilience and getting over stuff and getting through stuff and how to think about it and how to approach it and what he's observed and seen in PTSD patients and, and all that kind of stuff. He has a book. It's called Resilience, the Science Behind Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. And it was a pleasure to talk to him. Uh, tons of interesting stuff in here, and I won't bore you with it. We'll just get right to it. As always, this show is brought to you by Rockabilia. That's the place to get your merch. That, and by merch, I mean merchandise. And by merchandise, I mean T-shirts of pop culture and bands and stuff like that. They've got lots of great stuff over there. Use the promo code PCJabberJaw. You get 15% off your order, and that's rockabilia.com. Uh, also, make sure you, if you live in the Texas or Arkansas or even Atlanta area, come see my band, Emory. We're going to be out on the road in August. Tickets are on sale now, and they're already selling pretty good, so go ahead and get them. And that'll come before you know it. I'd love to meet all you guys. Tell me if you listen to the show. I love that when I'm out with Emory and somebody says, I'm a fan of Break It Down. That's that's uh, that's always really, really, really nice. Uh, that's it. I'm not going to say anything else. Let's get right into this episode. And I think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's make harder. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just so interested in the topic of resilience. And uh, I'm real curious how you got into it in the first place. So I want to make sure I understand and the audience understands your background and how you got into resilience. But are, are you a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist? Yes. Okay. And how did you uh, get the, into resilience the way, specifically? Well, the way we, the way we got involved um, is uh, my colleague Dennis Charney and I and a number of other uh, both clinicians and researchers uh, – got very interested in post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we uh, had done quite a bit of research on post-traumatic stress disorder, trying to understand how extreme trauma affects the nervous system and affects how we operate socially and psychologically. Mm -hmm. And uh, traumas can, as you know, can be really devastating. Um, and while we were studying PTSD and working with many wonderful veterans and civilians, we began to uh, also ask about what are some of the protective factors? What, what are factors that can help people get through very difficult challenges and times? And so we interviewed a large number of prisoners of war from Vietnam, ex-prisoners of war. We interviewed special forces instructors because we thought that they would be very good at teaching us uh, how to manage stress, both psychological and physical. And we interviewed lots of uh, men, women, civilian men, women, and children who had been through really rough times, might be symptomatic, but nevertheless had figured out a way to push on with life. And uh, this was really, and it's always been a privilege actually to be a psychiatrist working with uh, veterans who have PTSD. By the way, I was in the military from 1968 to 70. I was not in combat. Had I been in combat, I feel confident I would have PTSD. So it's hmm. it's 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 a it's a tough it's a tough condition. Uh, but in any case, we had the privilege of interviewing not only people with PTSD, but in matter of fact, many of the highly resilient people we interviewed had uh, PTSD or versions of PTSD. And uh, we kept hearing the same themes over and over again. And uh, we kind of boiled it down to ten different themes. Now, there could be more, there could be fewer, but that's what we kept hearing from all of the people we interviewed. And then we went to the, to the science literature and found a lot of support, both from the psychological literature and the neuroscience literature, to support these factors 
as being helpful in building resilience. Okay. So can we define resilience then? Yeah, I mean, one way to I, think that's, about that's it silly. Is, I'm sure you have a good definition of, of resilience, but I'd like to know what it is. No, actually, it's a really good question because there is no one scientifically accepted definition because it's, it's a complex construct. So uh, I like to think of it as bending but not breaking, the ability to bounce back. Mm-hmm. It may take you, it may take some people a lot longer to bounce back. It may take others a shorter period of time. And People can be resilient in one area of their life, but not so much resilient in another. For example, I, I might be. That. That's interesting. Yeah, I might be. I might be resilient in my work life, but not so much in my relationship life. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's complicated. Uh, you know, you, we've all met people who are tough as nails in some areas of life, but just not doing so well in others. Yeah. Well, tough and resilient aren't the same. I mean, you can be tough, but when you break, you're over. Right. That's not resilient. That's correct. It's just tough. That's correct. Yeah, or hard. Resilience is pretty much, yeah, resilience is pretty much this ability to bend. You know, Mm -hmm. bend, uh, you know, you may become symptomatic, whatever, but you don't quite break. Are you using the word flexibility there? Yes. Okay. And and one of the things we've found from a biological standpoint is uh, nervous system and so forth is that people who are resilient. They, they basically learn to uh, harness their stress response. So all of us have this very important you know, adrenaline and noradrenaline and cortisol and so forth. And these responses keep us alive, of course. It's called the fight-flight response. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that resilience people that we've, we've found and others have found, that while we've, and we've done a lot of uh, studies with special forces and so forth, and they have big stress responses, but they come back to baseline quickly. So there's a, there's a wonderful book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's by a brilliant scientist uh, whose name is Sapolsky. And basically what he's talking about is when a zebra gets chased by a lion, it has a huge stress response, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and so forth. It protects it. But as soon as it's out of danger, its stress response goes back to baseline very quickly. Nice. But that's not true with humans Mm -hmm. because we can ruminate and we can anticipate. So Mm -hmm. we might think, oh, my gosh, I almost got eaten by a lion. I can't believe it. And And we might also find ourselves thinking, oh, my gosh, what happens if I see a lion again? So we can keep ourselves, as I'm sure you know, we all know, we can keep ourselves stressed 24-7. Yes. So a big part of resilience. Is knowing how to recover, to knowing how to that. bring your to regulate your stress response. Exactly, that's mm-hmm. a huge part of resilience. Yep. Okay. Good. Okay, that is really good foundationally there, and that's definitely the way it is with animals. You know, I've always, always thought that was just bizarre. Like, you know, they they seem to if you hurt a dog or something, it's just over it. Like the same thing, right. if they have pain or something bad happens, they're just over it kind of a thing. And maybe kids are that way too, because everybody talks about how resilient kids are. So I bet there's some, I'm sure we'll get to that, but I bet you kids is a big thing because they're so resilient. But they also have less developed of the cognitive, you know, the prefrontal part of their brain, I suppose. So again, they're just living that's, in the moment. A, that's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons that mindfulness has become so popular in in psychiatry and psychology is it helps people to live in the moment. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like I'm a pretty in the moment guy and mindful in some regards, not that I do meditation or anything. Uh, and I feel resilient, but I don't know that, that that's necessarily the case. I'm trying to now connect if there's a through line between simple things and what you, uh, I'm trying to get a, a beat on what we call trauma or stress. Like I feel resilient in a general way, but on the other hand, I'd had to acknowledge I've not experienced any massive trauma or anything anyway. So right. maybe I, is it that I don't know or, or somebody that seems resilient on a small level is likely to be resilient um, from a, a larger trauma as well? I think it's both, actually. Okay. I, there's, no, there's no question that learning to uh, deal with and negotiate smaller traumas effectively uh, is, is really good preparation. But quite honestly none of us really know exactly how we're going to react in a big situation, a really overwhelming one. Uh, training helps a lot. And some of the best training is what's called scenario-based training, 
And that's training that's as realistic as possible. So that's why firemen and policemen mm-hmm. and soldiers, you know, go through mock experiences as close as they can to the real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that their, their brain is and their nervous system is prepared because the nervous system tends to react pretty strongly to things that are surprising or uh, unexpected. Uh huh. I understand that. Does that also then pre-qualify certain people to, let's see if I can say this right, aren't certain people attracted to stuff like that? Like particularly, I enjoy things when they're chaotic. I'm usually calm when other people are not in, you know, again, low-level things here. But when there's a problem, I play in a rock band and travel, and when things go sideways for travel or what are we going to do or something feels like an emergency – there's something about those situations that I like and people identify that I handle well. It, are there all the way up to special forces and stuff like that? Are the people that wind up in them like naturally attracted to, is there some part of see, people's brains that they're even wired to handle or even enjoy or, or get satisfaction from handling stress and chaos? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, however, it's, they're, they're both uh, genetic, although not as much as you might think. Genetic influences there are the way you were raised by your parents. Oh, tell me more uh, about that. I'd love to hear all about that if you know more. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. Um, well, it's it, it's really tricky being a good parent, as as anybody who's been a parent knows. Mm-hmm. And I think, with regard to resilience, uh, it's it's finding the right balance between protecting your child and pushing them out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a wonderful term by a, a pediatrician named Winnicott, and he coined this term the good enough mother. And what he meant was good enough mother, good enough father. It's not just mother. It's just a term they used This is quite a while ago. And what he meant by that, that the, the, the good enough parent is actually, in his opinion, the best parent. Because the good enough parent allows their child enough freedom that the child can explore, can fail, can uh, get up, pick up themselves up again, and uh, and they're not what some people now call the helicopter mm-hmm. parent who swoops in and, you know, I can't stand seeing Johnny get upset about anything, so I'm going to take care of everything. So the idea is you don't want to be too negligent and you don't want to be too overprotective. And it's hard to be the good enough parent, which is the best parent according to Winnicott, because I have to be willing to watch my child fail at times. Now, I'm not going to let my child become truly overwhelmed uh, because where we grow, we tend to grow outside of our comfort zone, Mm -hmm. but we, we really, it's, it's not a good thing to be truly overwhelmed. Yeah. So so that's been don't break. That's the same thing. That's what you're saying. It's a challenge, not crushed. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be a, and so, if you think about child rearing from my perspective and from our perspective, you that's exactly what you want. That's what you want to provide your child with all these opportunities, challenged but not crushed. Mm. You don't want to be too overprotective and you don't want to be negligent. Yeah, I, th- I, go, I uh, deal with that a lot. I've got two, I've got a two year old and a five year old, and I, <laughs> I'm definitely in the category where other parents get a little. Uh, they don't like how far I let things go on the playground or in public. You know, I, I'll, I'll definitely let it hang out there before I get involved. Because I think of parenting as an interventional thing. Like that helicopter parenting stuff is so, they're trying to be the best parent. And I agree with you that that makes you a worse parent. Then I think good enough is better. And mainly because it's like, what would be the best, like think of it, it was like a doctor. What's the best doctor? Somebody's always doing uh, procedures on you? Or, or, or just that, you know, that's not the best, you know, everything you do is an intervention almost in a way. So the, the kids are seem to know how to be wired up and to bounce back and get into just the right amount of jam that they could get out of, you know. So I'm always looking to, to stay out of the way as much as I can as a parent. So I'm glad that may translate into resilience. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, like you said, the helicopter parent has very good intentions. Right. But uh, but the thing is, are you preparing your child for the challenges ahead? Yeah, I mean they're gonna. You know, we all have to figure out our own life. That's and, right. Uh, you can't protect them forever, yeah. so they better learn. You know, I'm trying to get them up and out. Like they look at me when something goes wrong, and I'm my attitude is, "Don't look at me." Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> <laughs> and if, of course, if it was truly something, then you get involved. But well, something's 
you know, I think it, if there's a bias here, we're way, way on the overprotective side, it seems to me, because we live in a relatively oh. safe society. So, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Or we're fortunate that, enough to hear where I live or something. Not the whole world's that way, yeah. but man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's really good. Um, uh-huh. Or it makes me feel good at least. But uh, so let's talk more about the resilience themselves. Keep on going. I, I interrupted you there just because I, I, I love that topic of, of kids and, and how they are and, and how to harness their resilience. Do you think we get, do you think there's a point when you become less resilient? And where is it if kids, people always say are resilient? I think you have to work at it all the time. And it's like, you know, the, the brain is very plastic, which is, which is uh, an exciting uh, series of discoveries over the last, I don't know how many years, but it used to be that people thought, you know, you have a certain number of brain cells mm-hmm. and you just kind of lose them over your life. <laughs> and, uh, but it turns out that, you know, it's, it's called use-dependent neuroplasticity. So use it or lose it. Mm-hmm. So the more you do... You know, it's like anything else. If you train, if, if even if you meditate, if you practice it over and over and over, you're actually going to change the way your brain functions. You're going to change some of the pathways in your brain. Uh, just like if you throw a baseball or hit a tennis ball again and again in a particular way, you will change the structure of your nervous system and your brain. There are fascinating studies done with uh, violin players. So if you take a, a right-handed violin player they're using the fingers on their left hand, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the bow, much more than the fingers on their right hand. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the area of the brain that's devoted to moving the fingers on the left hand versus the area of the brain that's used to move the right hand, the ones in the left, the area of the brain on the left hand is bigger. So you, because you've used this, and so that's true with essentially many, many things. And so that there's, there's no substitute for practice. And of course, you always want to practice as accurately as possible, whatever it is, because you're reinforcing that wiring in your brain. So resilience is lifelong practice of and basically moving out of your comfort zones. That's that's right. And um, yes, and resilience. I, I like to think of resilience as a set of skills. Okay. That that I've developed over time, and one of them, as I said, might be mindfulness, where. I learned to be attentive. I learned to pay attention to my thoughts. I learned to regulate my emotions. I don't, I don't instantaneously become them. I mean, we all do, but I can get out of an emotional state more rapidly. Uh, physical exercise is really, really interesting. The neuroscience of physical exercise has been a lot learned recently, but there's a great study uh, showing that with a physical exercise, you can increase the size of a of one of the areas of your brain that's critical for memory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so exercise actually helps to repair uh, nerve, nerve cells in your brain that are, t- t- are typically damaged by stress. So there, so there are all sorts of ways to become more resilient. If you become physically in good shape, you're actually increasing your emotional resilience as well. Interesting. You, know, you feel more confident. You can handle things. Um, but there, there are a number of different factors. One I'd actually like to talk about that sometimes I, I used to not pay much attention to it until we really got into this uh, literature and this research is social connectedness. So it turns out that uh, one of my colleagues did a study of returning Iraq Afghanistan veterans. And probably the most, if not one of the most important protective factors for developing PTSD is how strong your social network is. Hmm. And yes. And because your social network actually affects how you, your body handles stress. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested now. Yeah. So, um, you can do experiments where you have someone in a laboratory and they're doing something very stressful. And then you can measure various stress hormones. You can measure heart rate and blood pressure, measures of stress. Uh-huh. If, if someone else is in the room, perhaps a friend, doing nothing, just sitting there, you have a significantly 
reduced stress response to the same stressor. I completely, I can, completely think that makes sense. Yeah. But I, I, I'd love yeah. to hear that. I'm love to hear the mechanism by which that happens. But that intuitively sounds correct to me. Like, oh, when you're around people, you don't feel as bad, or or something. What, tell me about what that could be. Well, there there are a number of things. Um, one is that, uh, well, we release oxytocin, mm-hmm. which is a chemical which helps to quiet the stress response. It's also a chemical that is related to attachment and to uh, affiliate, affiliated behaviors, like rec- even recognizing someone's face. Uh, there are, it's, it's very interesting that the brain probably developed in a way to make rejection and social exclusion very painful mm-hmm. because because those experiences of quote social pain are processed in some of the same areas that physical pain is processed and some people believe that the brain evolved that way so that you would stay connected to others because by yourself you're far more likely to die uh, uh, you know certainly in our our, our ancestors and so forth mm-hmm. and so it turns out the brain makes it very painful to be rejected at all. And sometimes I think, well, oh gosh, why, why am I, why is this so painful? It doesn't even seem like that big a deal. Well, part of it's because that's how the brain operates. It want, it, it, it wants, it doesn't want you to get rejected. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want you to be extruded. And, yeah. um, and, and also when you're, when you're in a group, you're more likely to use active coping mechanisms. So you're, you're more likely to problem solve. You know, you have somebody's got your back. And so you're more confident. And I can tell you, working with the special forces, oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was very envious. It's like being on a football team. Absolutely. Because talk about having each other's back. And, and, they, and the special forces also, they cross-train. So there might be one medic, but everyone can put in an IV. Mm-hmm. And and. If someone's family is, um, if someone's having difficulty with their family, something, you know, some uh, stressful situation or medical situation or whatever, it's not uncommon that many special forces colleagues will, 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 will offer help and really, really mean it and try to help. And so it's, 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 I, I, I really was sort of envious because there's nothing, I love being on a team, mm-hmm. a really good team and you care about each other. And believe me, your stress. Here's an example. I remember being an intern in medicine, and you get called at night and to, to help someone who's in distress, and you might be nervous. But if you're with another colleague, you're, you're less nervous. You know, that's it's right. just because you know you can do it together. It's like you're sharing the. I mean, the, the, that's not the biological explanation, but the intuitive level explanation would be along the lines of, well, we're sharing the misery together and there's less of it or something is the way that feels like, yes, there's a big bad problem total between us, but he's feeling it too. And he really is because to sit in a room with somebody that's in pain, it makes you feel pain too. And so I don't know if that's not necessarily mathematically true. I don't know if it is, but it feels like, oh, well, we're sharing the burden here. And also the your strategy, you, you feel confident that there's strategies to overcome it, that you have help with that too. And hopefully the sum of the parts is, you know, sum is more than the total of the parts there. So I, I think those things uh, kind of make sense to it. And when you talk about that special forces, it makes me think of that I'm very fortunate because, you know, everybody knows that football team and the camaraderie and stuff is really, really great. We know that's good in the military, but of course, in the, spe- the, the dangers are so high there. Uh, but I've been fortunate enough to be in a situation of, uh, like I mentioned before, touring in a rock band for a decade with people. And that is pretty, can be hair raising at times because you can get in all kind of predicaments. But you, the camaraderie and shared responsibility is so strong. You're on a bus with 10 of your best friends that you spend all your time with. You have a very clear objective and you really get in, like I said, some funny situations and you have all the confidence in the world that y'all are, you're going to figure it out. You always do. You're there together and bad stuff and good stuff happens and you conquer it and you do it as a team and you lose as a team. And to be able to have that camaraderie is, there's nothing. I mean, there's, it, it really, and obviously how lucky to do that in a safe environment where you also get to play music and do things that is fun, but it really is a, a unbelievable, powerful thing to see people individually overcome stuff and as a group and so it makes no 
it, it makes perfect sense that we'd be it'd be rewarded in a survival way of genes that being able to do stuff yep. like that would be uh, selected for. And it also points to how awful isolation must be for a human brain. Well, you know, I think you just described it really beautifully uh, because I've been on teams my whole life. And I, you know, when I'm, I just, teams are great. And, you know, if, if you have one that's working well together, there's nothing like it. Nothing it, just, like it, yeah. it boosts boosts everybody. Everybody gets stronger. Everybody is happier. It's uh, So I, I think that, uh, you know, often when people talk about resilience, they don't necessarily think that, oh, well, one way to become more resilient is to make sure that I am really on a team that matters. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and uh, your, your band is a, is a great example. It really is. And we have, rec- we have a research team that I work with, and I've worked with some of these, these, these men and women for many years. And, and uh, you know, we rely on each other. I care about them. They care about me. It makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. You know? So let's move on up the chain here. I know we're probably going a little bit backwards about it instead of starting with the, what are the factors are that, that name resilience. We talk, we're talking a little different route here, but let's talk about what are the actual factors. I wonder if people have an inherent sense if they're resilient or not. Like I, I identify that I feel, I think that I'm resilient, um, but I'm curious what the factors are and if there is, is it a self-scored? How do you score the people and what are the factors? Well, there there are various scales that you can use uh, that people fill out themselves. The factors that some of the factors that have been uh, repeatedly shown in the literature and so forth is uh, optimism, uh, but it's not rose-colored optimism. So resilient people tend to see light at the end of the tunnel. Uh-huh. They, uh, even though they're going through a hard time, yeah, uh, they they believe that they can make it. Uh, Rose-colored optimism uh, can be dangerous I, because yeah, yeah. you, yeah, you may overrate your ability and underrate the not do the, the work, yeah. yeah, and not do the work. Mm-hmm. So I can I can tell you that military guys don't like to be with rose-colored optimists particularly, mm-hmm. uh, but but so it's realistic optimism. Um, another is you have to learn how to face your fears. Now this is not easy. We all avoid what is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. But I've learned over time, uh, and through through these wonderful people that we've gotten to know, that you have to face your fears. And avoidance does not work. It turns out that at the heart of all of the anxiety disorders in psychiatry, like panic disorder, generalized anxiety, PTSD used to be an anxiety disorder. I still think it is, basically, uh, is avoidance. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, it... Because it's, 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 I don't know if it's easier, but it's, it's just what we tend to do. We don't like to feel uncomfortable. Are you However, in the territory there, though, where people say, no, it's not my fault. It's not because I'm avoiding. It's my brain chemical, man. Give me the pill. You, you sound like what you're saying people would take judgmentally. So, oh, you're avoiding something. Quit being so anxious. Well, I, I don't, I try not to make a, judge, a judgment. Uh, our, uh, the therapies for PTSD, a lot of them, uh, at the at the core of those therapies is what's called exposure. Mm-hmm. So in a in a in a uh, in a safe environment with a therapist, uh, the patient recalls the trauma in vivid detail, and uh, but it's in a safe environment, and they learn to experience it differently, mm-hmm. and uh, they learn to interpret it differently. Because often in traumas, people uh, feel that somehow they're to blame when. Usually they're not, or they they they, just, it's, they end up having uh, thoughts about the trauma that probably someone else looking from the outside would not be so harsh, mm-hmm. you know, or critical. Uh, so, no, I don't really see this as a judgment. It's just that uh, avoidance doesn't work. Well, I know people that, that that are have a lot of anxiety and panic attacks, and if I were to tell them, "Oh, well, we just need to figure out what you're avoiding," that they would not take kindly to that. <laughs> no, well, well, so panic attacks is an interesting example because uh, there are some very good treatments for panic disorder, and I'm a believer in if you need some medication, fine. And it turns out there are some medications for panic disorder that actually work very well in conjunction with a therapy that is exposure based. So mm-hmm. 
you know, it's a combination. Not everybody needs medication. Some people, it's really helpful. And usually a combination now. Okay. And so that is in the, we were talking about one of the factors. It was, uh, what, where were we? Yeah, that, that, facing fears. Okay. You have to learn how to face your fears. Mm-hmm. And um, another factor is uh, having a moral compass. It's interesting. We were, we were not expecting this exactly. But if for people who have a sort of a, an ethical code, uh, they can resist and withstand a great deal of stress and trauma defending that uh, ethical and moral code. Mm, higher um, purpose vibe. Then. A higher purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and, and higher purpose is, is one of the real pillars of resilience, in my opinion. So uh, meaning and purpose and is this a mission? For example, an uh, example I sometimes give is Nelson Mandela. Okay, so he was able to withstand 30 years of imprisonment, and he did that with grace and dignity because his imprisonment stood for equality for all. Uh-huh. So he had a mission, and that mission was more powerful than the prison. Mm-hmm. And that gave him tremendous strength. So, you know, and, and we all know this, it, when, you, when you see someone on a mission, like a mother on a mission, yeah. for example, wow, uh, that that's impressive because uh, they that that person ends up being very resilient. Interesting. Yeah, I would think that'd be true for the higher purpose thing. Obviously, I mean, would it be true independent of the belief system? I imagine, right? Yeah, I think it, it, you could. You know, whatever your mission is. Now, the higher purpose. It's interesting. Um, religion I mean, and spirituality are, are we found in in certainly the the majority of the people we've interviewed, religion and spirituality were very important with regard to resilience. Very important. I imagine you um, had to be in that category to be a jihadist, for instance. Well, that's complicated, but yes, um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, afra- I'm afraid to say that uh, not just because someone's resilient doesn't necessarily mean that you or I would agree with their mission. Right. They could be pretty nefarious, resilient people that's how you if you really wanted to right. conquer and dominate the world it would probably take that those skills as well as whatever evil you intended to do but you know no right. judgment either way on stuff like that. i'm just saying it seems right. that you could be your belief system can ha- help you transcend what you could otherwise because it's a higher purpose i imagine just being a father is that way it's like well you know there's bigger things to be done here than than what whether or not i can handle this so i'm just going to handle it no matter what yeah i mean Right. So whatever you, if your mission is really important to you, whatever it is, that's going to make you stronger. Mm-hmm. And again, that's still involved with other people usually too, as opposed to being isolated. Absolutely. Where are yep. you? And, and by the way, you're right. Isolation and loneliness uh, are strongly associated with problems with m- medical, physical health, and uh, mental health. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are some studies big studies with thousands and thousands of uh, subjects that have shown that isolation, loneliness uh, can be as toxic to your, how long you live as cigarette smoking uh, or obesity. Yeah. I can imagine that. I mean, that sounds, you know, reasonable in a general way because you just, well, Okay, so how does where are the boundaries here then between the mental and the physical? Like when are we talking about trauma and it has to is emotional and emo, uh, str- mental stress or trauma just as bad or different than physical as far as the way your body responds to it? Well, they're, it's interesting. They they're different, of course, uh, but there are some great similarities. Um, our stress response is pretty similar for many different stressors. So we, you know, we have adrenaline, cortisol, and, uh, and others uh, for all sorts of stressors, and uh, physical and uh, emotional. Unfortunately, in our world today, with uh, all of the sort of incoming negative information that if you just turn the radio uh, mm-hmm. or TV or you know, just, there's just too much information, uh, and and humans are naturally, as are most animals, 
naturally drawn toward negative information mm-hmm. uh, because that's survival. Uh, they're also drawn to positive information, but not typically as much as negative. So, you know, you have all of this negativity and, you know, there's a low level of stress that most of us experience throughout the day. And uh, obviously that builds up over time and it's it's not good for your health. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, as I said, learning to recover, and by recover, I mean, get your stress response back to baseline. And that's what these, boy, I'll tell you, the special forces people that that we interviewed and we studied their their neurobiology, uh, they had they they were very good at that. They had big stress response, but got back to baseline pretty quickly. Um, and but there are ways that you can learn to do that. You know, you can you can and 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 we believe that it's important when you're training if you want to become more resilient that you just you train in the skills of recovery just as much as you train in, you know, how to get stronger, lift more weights, do whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, the principle is if you want to do upper body weights, you don't do them two days in a row. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's the same with you have to figure out how to recover. And in our world today, it's, you know, everybody's addicted. Every time I get on the subway or something, I, I notice me included, everybody's on their cell phone, everybody, you know, and uh, that's just a little too much information coming in all the time. And a lot of it is negative. You're right about that. So you feel, feel like, uh, there's a direct quote from you. Donald Trump caused the whole United States cortisol level to go up to an unhealthy level. (laughs) (laughs) We're producing more cortisol as Americans this year than last year, right? (laughs) I'm just kidding about attributing that to you, but isn't that something about that is true. Like we're all too stressed out all the time because we, that's where, that's what we're doing. Yeah. You know, it's a, uh, I, th- I think with this explosion of information, mm-hmm. uh, I, when I was a kid, I, mean, I was just running around the block. I wasn't, you know, listen, I, I wasn't aware of all the things going on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I personally tried, I'm not very successful, but I personally tried to modulate a little bit uh, how much information I'm taking in. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so, and and I also, I also try to take in positive information. Yeah. So I, I do like to, you know, things that are positive and read stories that are positive and and uh be around optimistic people too yeah there's certainly a negativity bias because it's you know if you notice something that's a threat it might keep you alive if you notice something is pretty well no big deal like that's nice sure whatever but your deep part of your body goes wait that could be a threat that does you know help survival but not if it's coming across facebook it's not going to help your survival yet you're you know, physiologically going through all those same responses, which are making right. not resilient. You think that even that affects resilience, resiliency? Well, well, I think so because you resilience. get kind of worn what, down. Is it resilience or resiliency in that in this? In either we, one's okay. They're the same. Okay, yeah, either. Yeah, but but you you know the idea is you. Why would you want to wear down your your body and your and your mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, so so we really believe in systematically dedicating time to learning how to recover mm-hmm. and for, for different people it's, it may be different but you also could say maybe you could design for acute stress that is for something important too that's, that's actually healthy is to find stressful things to do problems to solve and challenges that are you know important and that you can do and then overcome and then put put aside would be a good yeah. So, good example, method. we we, are, we talk about uh, passive toughening and active toughening. And by passive toughening, uh, actually, there's a there's a really great psychologist, Jim Lore, who talks about this. And passive toughening is, hey, look, you know, I we're all going to have plenty of stresses during the course of our life and during the course of a day, and uh, traumas. Most of us will have a variety of traumas. They're going to come anyway. There's nothing I can do about that. What, what I can do about it, however, is to use those the best I can as opportunities to grow. So if there's an opportunity in there somewhere, try to find it mm-hmm. in terms of growth. Now, that might be passive toughening. It's coming anyway. i got to handle it. Let me handle it the most 
positive way possible. Mm-hmm. Then we talk about active uh, strengthening or toughening. Guess what you were saying? Okay, you know what? I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to, I want to run a marathon. I've always wanted to run a marathon. Okay, well, I have to do it systematically, something called stress inoculation. You know, I, I don't run 26 miles the first day and, you know, blow, you know, ruin my body. But I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to challenge myself. And one of my colleague, uh, Dennis Charney, who wrote this book together, um, he, uh, he used to challenge his kids quite a bit, uh, and take them on some pretty rigorous camping trips and so forth. And he won't mind my saying this, but, uh, cause he says this uh, pretty regularly. One of his kids would, I don't know, teenagers in one of these outings that was really challenging, she said something like, I despise you, dad. <laughs> 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 and, uh, but as an adult, um, they're very close. I mean, it's a very close family. As an adult, uh, she loves challenges, kayaking and hiking, and and it, it made her stronger. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, that's, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, that seems like it's the whole idea is that, <laughs> I mean, I, maybe that's why, you know, it, it's really interesting to have things that cause anxiety that people seem to select four but they just shouldn't be permanent i mean that's one of the things about performing that is really alluring it's like oh my goodness on the 30th i have this big thing i have to talk at an event or do a thing and i prepare for it and i'm nervous and then i did it and then you go back to baseline and that ride itself both grows you and i suppose is good for you that's right and if you if you didn't learn how to come back to baseline again after those experiences you would burn out and you probably wouldn't be in your job. Mm-hmm. I bet stand-up comedians so would be yeah. somebody interesting for for you. I don't know if you've thought about that, but they there are the most crazy people. It seems about the thrill of getting up there, and ha- they they hate it before they do it, and then they feel so good after. But right. then they're addicted and have to go back. I wonder. And they seem to be yeah. just unbelievably mentally tough to you know go up there and bomb or make the you know the the kinds of things that they go through. I bet would be interesting to study in that in that regard yeah i think you're right that's an interesting group that that that's tough because when you get up there in humor and it, it bombs mm-hmm. that's about as bad as it gets but they 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 really they can't stand it that that, that makes them just come, go work hard and come back kind of thing that's what the quality right. that those people have that i think right. a lot of people don't i don't i wonder if they're on as a whole a resilient people or not well i i imagine in some ways they are because one of the things about resilience is learning from failure I think this is one of the, I've noticed in, in our society, I think we're afraid to let students and fail and so forth, or there's, you know, everything has to be perfect. And uh, I think it's a shame because you, you really learn from failure. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you learn from failure, particularly if you have good mentors. It's learning from failure with good mentors. Yeah, that sounds like a safe. Um... Yeah. A safe way, way to go. It's just in one of those more things where you have to, yeah, I mean, that, I guess that just affirms some general things people know about isolation and mentorship and leadership and being in community, all those things. Uh, and you have the uh, actual science kind of to back it up, it sounds like. What are some of the other factors? In, uh, well, we, we really, we we really believe in, in finding uh, resilient role models. I see. So, yeah, so I, when we wrote this book and when we interviewed all these amazing people, well, we did pretty in-depth interviews, so I got to know quite a number of remarkable people, and I can tell you they are in my head, and uh, there's an example of this amazing young woman who had a disability, who, and she's phenomenal, I mean, and she became a great swimmer, and she, in high school, would swim 26 miles a week for practice 26 mm-hmm. miles a week that's a lot of swimming you know right. i think it's yeah. 70 72 laps is one mile of a pool so when i get into the pool i like to exercise i get in the pool and you know after about 20 laps i'm thinking yeah maybe that's probably that's I mean, that's enough and then this young woman comes to mind and i say what are you kidding me she swims 26 miles a week you can do a little better than this and uh and I just, just from every many different aspects, I have these great role models that just pop into my head when I begin to wimp out on something. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's like, a, 
Yeah, that's another part of that thing when you're with other people is you're able to like put their, the people that you're close to, my grandma would say, you know, you're no better than the three people, people you hang around, but you're like those people, the people you're in relationships with, you could put on their problem solving hat. Like how would this person do? Well, I guess they'd go for, okay. And you could push yourself farther or get sometimes conjure an answer of how to handle a certain situation based on, you know, other people that you can model their thinking kind of a thing. Yeah, and you can even ask people. Uh, so if, if there's somebody that you notice in your life who really handles stress well, you know, mm-hmm. you can kind of study that person or you can ask that person. For example, uh, I, there's someone who comes to mind who is a friend of mine who's really resilient. And I've, I've noticed that every time she gets in a tough situation, she reaches out to her friend hmm. and in a very positive way, in a very, okay, let's, I need I need some help now. Let's get this thing taken care of, and uh, you know, problem solved and so forth. Uh, she also um, continues to exercise, and uh, un- for me, sometimes it's hard to continue to exercise when I'm consumed with some other stressor, but it helps. Mm-hmm. And so I I kind of studied what she's done. I've studied what well, a lot of people have done because that's what we're you know we interview a lot of people to get ideas of okay, well, how do they do it? Maybe that'll work for me. Maybe it won't. There's no, no one size fits all. You know, we all have our, but it's really great to be around people who negotiate stress well and then try to imitate. And you could, and as I said, you could even ask them, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. And uh, people, are, people are happy to talk about that. Yeah, because it's a little flattering to them, I suppose they are. Is there a component exactly. of this that is... Uh... Or is this related? Does this does does way you think and the practice you have relate all the way down into stuff like the immune system? Is there effects there? Yes, uh, and that's a an active area of investigation. Uh, but certainly, the stress response is very closely tied to the immune system, mm-hmm. and uh, chronic stress that you can't seem to control. Uh, tends to have negative effects on numerous body systems. By the way, uh, as we're saying, stress is not, you know, typically people say, oh, stress is bad. But as we've been saying today, stress is not bad. Mm -hmm. It's the type of stress that can be bad. So stress that, there are thousands of animal studies that show that you can give animals, two animals, the exact same amount of stress. But if one of them believes that it has some control over that stressor, it does very well. The animal that feels it has no control, it's kind of a learned helplessness, mm-hmm. does poorly. It's things. That's devastating yeah. when you think about when you apply that back to parenting. You cannot make those damn kids feel powerless. You can't do that to them because that's, that's how that works. That's terrible. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. And so... And, you know, it, it's a gradual process and it's a, it's, it's like being, you know, being a great parent, a great coach, a great mentor, you really have to know your mentee or your child to know what for them is out of their comfort zone or is in their, is out of their comfort zone, but not overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And you know, that takes some real sensitivity. You have to know your students and you have to know, cause it's a little different for each one. Like if you have three kids, uh, you know, one kid may be a little more sensitive than the other, uh, but that doesn't mean they they still have they they still have an out of their comfort zone yeah. region. Yeah, and, adjusted uh, for so the might, individual. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but when it comes to the immune system, how can that interact? What's the like? Does it mean people that are cancer are fighters? That that kind of thing. Like well, the, the mental yeah, attitude you take into to that. Yeah, the, those those sorts of studies are very hard to uh, to do. To uh, but there's a lot of evidence that your 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 outlook, optimism, your mood, uh, depression can be very bad. And you know, people can't help being depressed at times. I mean, it's just the way it is. But um, or some of that may be biological or whatever, but um, even in those situations, uh, you want to try your best to be optimistic, to be around people 
uh, social connectedness to try to exercise if you can. Sometimes it's really hard to do that. But um, yes, all of these things can, can affect immune function. And uh, so I, I, I do want to do my best to embrace healthy stress, if you will, to stress myself, but stress that I can manage mm-hmm. and that I can, uh, that can, I, that I can master. Cause you know, mastery is great. Everybody, it's so wonderful to master something. It almost doesn't matter what it is. Mm-hmm. If you start out to train in something like a guitar, the, uh, you know, painting a meditate, learning to meditate, uh, playing tennis, you know, whatever it is, whatever you're trying to master, boy, it feels great as you, as you get better at it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so a lot of this is about mastering stress. How can I master this? And there are some techniques and can I learn them and that sort of thing. That, that is, that is, makes a lot of sense. Let me press my, uh, a pet theory of mine here and feel free to dispel it. I'd be happy to put it to bed, but I'm afraid that I'm on the right track here. But you, the way you said that, I asked you about immune system and cancer and stuff like that. You think that that really goes all the way down to potentially the level of like having a cold? Because in my experience, I don't, it's of course, nothing but subjective experience here, but it seems to me that when people are nervous about getting sick and they get sick a lot and they think negatively about getting sick and start altering all their behaviors when they think a cold is coming on, I always am horrified by that impulse. And mine is the opposite is to, I don't let sickness take anything from me that it, it, it that I just don't, you know, if I'm sick, fine, but I, tr- I don't preemptively change my behavior, give into it at all. And I try to just push through. And I feel like that, that, the way I think about it has some effects on one's actual immune system. Am I out of, yeah, out of left no, field not, on that? No, no, there, there's, there's evidence to uh, support that. Again, these are very difficult studies to do, but mm-hmm. no, there, 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 uh, there are studies uh, looking at uh, mood and, uh, you know, outlook and so forth. For example, um, there are studies showing that uh, people who are optimistic uh, prior to certain types of surgery heal faster or that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So there's, there's, you know, attitude and mood and thoughts, they're all affecting how my stress response is, how my, you know, hormones are responding and how my nervous system is responding, which is affecting, you know, every mm-hmm. organ in my body one way or another. Yeah, the hormonal connection I didn't have, I didn't have any mechanism for it. So I sound fruity when I tell people you can help yourself not get sick, just don't give into it or something, which people get mad when I say that, but it really seems seems that way to me. And of course, I get sick sometimes when nothing you can do mentally to fight off a bad enough flu. I get it. But I think the hormonal thing gives the, the ability there. Cause you could certainly say that your hormones, yeah, they change from oxytocin when you see a buddy or get, you know, leave the right. house and go do stuff. And those hormones can affect your immune system. So that'll give me a little bit better of a way to try to draw something technical um, next time I try yeah, I to think, make that I argument. Think, I, no, I think you're right. I think there are, there are, um, there are viruses and bacteria and all sorts of things that we can't, you know, that we're going to get sick. Uh, but, you know, how you respond to that, how quickly you recover, how, yeah, those make a big difference. Negative thinking towards an oncoming cold could, in your opinion, make the cold worse. Well, I think so. I, okay. I, I'd be hard pressed to, to find some many studies to say that, but I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that makes me feel better already. Um, but all this stuff seems makes, makes a lot of sense to me, but there's a lot more to it. Um, what do we, what, uh, what would be the research going forward and what, like, what kind of things could come out of this? It's kind of exciting stuff to me. There's a lot more to talk about, but we can't go on forever. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're really approaching it from, and many others, not just us, uh, from many different angles. Uh, we try to look at it from a neurobiological standpoint. Is is there are, are there uh, ways to um, to assist our brain function in uh, uh, negotiating stress? Uh, we look at it from a psychosocial standpoint. Like for example, one of my colleagues did this study, as I was sort of referring to, that uh, social connectedness is extremely powerful in helping with stress. And it turns out 
that there are different elements. So we might look into, you know, sort of uh, look under the hood, if you will. And it turns out that with returning Iraq Afghanistan vets, he found that providing emotional support was important and providing resources, you know, if you didn't have particular resources was important and providing advice was important. But the most important was helping the person feel understood. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we, we might say, oh, that, that's a little on the soft side. It's not. It's, and as a matter of fact, I saw a recent brain imaging study showing that when you feel understood in a laboratory setting, it tends to light up the reward center in the brain, the ventral striatum. So there's this area, just like, uh, you know, eating something or just like any kind of reward, uh, feeling understood is rewarding to your brain. Uh, so, so part of what I think is, is important is to understand, you know, that people, everybody's a little different. And so there's a little different genetic makeup, little different, uh, quite a different, uh, way in which different people are raised. Um, and then the different, how resources fit into this, by the way, it's much, I have to say, it's easier for people to be resilient if they have sufficient resources. So an example sure. I sometimes give is, there's a hurricane, my house is blown down, uh, and I'm homeless. That's <laughs> yeah. really tough. Yeah, right. But someone else has two houses, and one of their houses is blown down, but they have another house. Well, guess what? They don't, they're not going to face yeah. a, a, anywhere near the same type of stress. So but there, there'd still matter. be a range of that. There'd still be a range of people with two houses. The ones that were resilient would still operate a lot better in that condition to compare to than the ones, that's, you know, the other ones in that same condition. But you couldn't compare the two conditions. That's That's right. That's right. So if you're looking at this genetics, uh, you know, choices and child development, I suspect that child development might be the the largest piece of this. Would you is there any, would you break that down at all? Well, it's a it's a very big piece because I have you know we're talking about a developing nervous system mm-hmm. that's pretty darn plastic. Yeah, and you know, is this child going to learn how to negotiate challenges? You know, obviously with help at first, but then to gradually taper off. And is this child going to learn to be independent enough that they can be what we might call resilient as an adult. Now, and, but part of that resilience actually is, is uh, going to be uh, being socially and emotionally pretty sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So I, I learn how to make friends. I learn how to uh, make connections. I learn that in order to have a friend, I have to be a friend. I have to give in order mm-hmm. to receive. And all of those I have to learn how to control my emotions. Um, there, there are some fascinating studies, you're right, early on. If, uh, if there was this thing called the marshmallow test and some others. Mm-hmm, I know that. Where, yeah. Delayed gratification. So it, it, delayed gratification. If a kid doesn't learn delayed gratification, and that requires denying your child some things, mm-hmm. if a child does not learn delayed gratification you know, during uh, childhood and young adolescence, uh, there are studies, longitudinal studies saying, they will be noticeably less successful in their life in many different arenas. Uh, and so that, for example, delaying gratification would be what I might call a resilience skill. That's a, that takes, you know, that's awesome. a real skill. Absolutely. And, and if, if you think about willpower, isn't willpower a largely delayed gratification? Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm saying, uh, nice. no, I'm not going to eat this, whatever. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to go to the gym, even though I don't want to, because I know my goal is to get in better shape for whatever. And uh, so there, you're right. Childhood's really important, and you want to help your child develop these skills that will be the basis for resilience as an adult. Yeah, and the kids are different, of course. So some of them you can push farther than others, and of course there's no program exactly yeah. for it. But it brings up the, the most horrific scenario which is the opposite of of that and that is trauma occurring to a child which i imagine has every devastating effect that ties into this too it's awful and uh one form of child uh maltreatment is neglect Mm -hmm. you know children who are really neglected that's not that's that's terrible as well 
Yeah. And then it's just, then it's going to be all the easier to not be resilient. I mean, you have the trauma to overcome and, you know, you were, I imagine you faced something that there was no way to deal with it and you had no control and it was negative. And then I imagine that pathway is, has a lot of gravity from that point on. Exactly. That's a very good example of uncontrollable stress, Mm -hmm. which is a tough stress because my, abuser is big i'm little i can't control that mm-hmm. and that's that's tough on that's tough on people yeah uh one uh, just on a positive note um there's a, a great researcher at university of minnesota Anne maston and she wrote a book called ordinary magic and i believe what she's referring to ordinary magic is that all of us are significantly more resilient than we know so children have this quite a remarkable, as you've noticed, quite a remarkable reservoir of resilience in them. Mm-hmm. So part of what we want to do with children is to help them realize that. And so provide an ah. environment that's safe, that's safe enough for them to explore. I mean, they're, they're a lot tougher than you think. And, but you want that environment where they're, they're encouraged to explore in a safe way and so forth. And um, so because and I agree with Ann Masson 100%, this term ordinary magic, we are, humans in general, are far more resilient than they even know. Than they believe. And sometimes you, yeah, and then they believe for sure. And sometimes you, often you don't know how resilient you are until you're faced with some really tough situations. But why not, why not toughen yourself up a little bit beforehand uh, so that it will, won't be quite so overwhelming? Man, this intersects with so many things in culture that it's just so fascinating. And I'm not, we won't, we don't have all the ability to go through it, but just the PTSD of veterans is such an issue. Child development, being tough, parent. Oh my gosh, so many things in this. I'm thrilled to have run across it and got the chance to talk to you. And you have a book that's co authored with Dennis Charney. It's called Resilience. Um, Is there anything else you ask people to do or websites you like them to go to or work to follow? No, that, that would, um, that's that sounds good. We uh, there for for veterans and so forth uh, and others. There's a great website, the National Center for Post Traumatic Stress Disorder. It's a fantastic organization, and we're part of that. Uh, and there's just a wealth of information for for all sorts of you know anything related to traumatic stress. And you know the the majority of us are going to be traumatized at some point. Uh, now, something like combat, I mean, that's just repetitive trauma. Mm-hmm. And those, now that's, that's, we, uh, most of us will never have to face that sort of thing, but that's a great, it's a great organization, really good website with tons of information. And, uh, that would, that'd be a place I might, I would certainly look if I wanted to learn more about stress and trauma. Do you, being in this field, this is the last thing I'll ask you is, do you have any sense that it, in the net, in any timeline, that there would be a, a, a large breakthrough on mental health, psychiatry, PTSD, depression, stuff like that. I, you know, it feels like progress has been, we've learned a lot in the last 10 and 20 years, but not necessarily had any breakthroughs. Do you think there's one of those imminent at all? Uh, I don't see one that's imminent. There are some really exciting ones, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's, you know, you know, I, I, th- I think maybe one way to answer that is, uh, Human behavior, people are very complicated, you know, and the brain is very complex. And I think we've, I really do think we've made great progress in no recognizing, doubt. in learning, yeah, recognizing, yeah. learning and in treatments. There are some really good treatments and I see positive, really positive developments. I don't see a huge breakthrough in the immediate future, but mm-hmm. you know, little breakthroughs that add up and, uh, there's a lot more. For people who have been, you know, PTSD and so forth, there's a lot more available now than there was, you know, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and a much better understanding. I, I would be, it'd be hard. It's hard for me to imagine that in 20 or 30 years we ha- don't have some like way better treatments, though. Like more, it's hard. I mean, maybe not, but I, I have a hard well, time we, imagining yeah. it'll poke along for 30 years and be eight percent more effective or something. Well, I, I think I think we'll make uh, very significant progress in the next thirty years. Yeah. Well, I'm optimistic about I, it, and uh, thank you for yeah. all the work that you're doing. I'll let you I'll let you get on out of here, but thank you very very much. Okay. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Appreciate it. I'll talk okay. to you soon. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye bye.
Bye. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!